0: When Bobby Thompson hit the shot heard round the world, the man standing in left field and watching the ball sail over his head was Andy Pafko. The irony of that shot is this. Just a few years later, the two would be teammates and roommates for the Milwaukee Braves. And while almost everyone knows the story of Thompson, You know the story of the terrific Andy Pathka. And we're gonna tell it next on Sports Forgotten Heroes. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I sure hope everyone is doing well out there and staying safe. It's certainly a really odd time, and I hope we all pull through this in great shape. Right now, we're supposed to be enjoying the action on the field, staring out at the beautifully manicured lawns of ballparks across the country, including one of the game's oldest and most storied, Wrigley Field. And that's where Andy Pafko played for nine years of his career. He patrolled the outfield in Wrigley better than almost anyone. He could get to balls that few could dream about. And when he laid out and dove to rob a batter of a sure base hit, it was nothing less than spectacular. His arm, well, That was another spectacle. Few, and I mean few, dared to run on him. However, his reckless abandon in the outfield led to many injuries that sidelined him for long periods of time, and had he been able to stay healthy, he just might have been able to put up numbers that rivaled some of the game's greater ballplayers. Nonetheless, Andy Pafko was a stud, and today, author Joe Nice returns to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Joe has been my guest for shows on Gus DeRay and Burley Grimes. And I'm thrilled to have him back for this discussion on Pathco. Several years back, Joe wrote a book about Andy called Handy Andy. And it's still available on sites like Amazon. Please check it out. It's really a wonderful account of a ball player very few can recall. As always, a few notes before we get started. Please follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter, at SportsFHeroes. Check out SFH on Instagram, or look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook. And of course, check out SportsFH.com, where I have more information on all my guests and the stars I talk about. Finally, if you would, please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And as always, thank you to all for your support. Now, let's get to today's show with my guest, Joe nee. Hey Joe, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could be here.
1: Thanks for having me once again, Warren. Appreciate it.
0: Sure. Hey, you know, we've done a few episodes together and I thought it would be nice to start off by telling our listeners how or why you write about the heroes you do.
1: Well, it's been proximity, I guess, to where I live. I live in Western Wisconsin, and um, each of the subjects have been within about a 50 mile radius of where I live. So, and they all have ties actually to the Chippewa Valley, um, you know, the Eau Claire, Wisconsin area where I grew up. And so, uh, all people, they're kind of the, the big names of, of professional athletes from the area.
0: Mm hmm. Pretty cool to have such names located so close to you that's that's a pretty unique thing i would think especially uh for the area where where you're located
1: yeah yeah we're about an hour and a half east of the twin cities uh, minneapolis st paul um you know the largest city is eau claire which is you know about sixty-five thousand. but when these guys were growing up they very it was very you know it was half that if if that so yeah to have you know, hall of famer in baseball and a good player like Pafko and a, a football legend like Dore. It's, you know, it is a unique thing. And I was, I'm was fortunate that no one had written anything about them before me. So, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. so you said PAFCO, Andy PAFCO. in your research about Andy, going to put you on the spot here. What surprised you the most?
1: Um, I, I think how how good of a career he had, and you know he played on some great teams, and I mean, you know he's on the Cubs last world, I always say he was on the Cubs last World series, you know in the book I said that, but of course you know and uh <laughs> yeah. sixteen and one, but that's I guess the one asterisk in my book i I have to note there, but um real solid player five time all star um part of some real good teams.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, he was a terrific athlete, and in fact, some people thought he'd wind up playing football instead of baseball. So, first, tell us just how good an athlete he was, and second, why he ultimately chose to pursue a career in baseball as opposed to football.
1: Sure. So, he was uh, at Boyceville High School in Wisconsin here. He played football, basketball. Ah, uh, ran track and played kitten ball or softball. He did not. There wasn't a baseball team in his high school, and so what?
0: What exactly is kitten ball?
1: Kitten ball is softball, basically. It's uh, a another name for softball of that era. Uh, mm-hmm. Softball was huge in the yeah. area here at the time, and so football was his real first love. Uh, pretty decent sized guy, you know, six one, one ninety, one ninety five. Uh, he wanted to play for the University of Minnesota, which was a powerhouse at the time. And he was having a good senior year, and he hurt his ankle, I think, like fifth game in. And that kind of changed, you know, changed his outlook for what he you know, wanted to do. He didn't get a scholarship and was just going to be kind of resigned to uh, working out, uh, being a farmer for the rest of his life until baseball, till he uh, got recognized for baseball.
0: Where did he pick up baseball and football? And tell me what life was like for him on the farm, because that farm played a pretty big role until it was sold.
1: Yep. Yeah. And so, um, his, his dad had come over here, uh, pre-World War I and was living here, trying to earn enough money to get his mother and his two older brothers. Andy hadn't been born yet over here from Slovakia. And they didn't get over here until after, after World War I ended about 1920, uh, shortly thereafter, his mother became pregnant with him. And he was the, uh, the third of six boys to, uh, the Pafko family. And so um, there was a huge Slovak population in Western Wisconsin, particularly in Dunn County, where he grew up. Uh, his mom never really learned much English. Um, his dad knew just enough to conduct business. And Andy's the one who kind of brought um, English into the home. And, mm-hmm. there were, and so he kind of, he grew up, uh, you know, baseball, there was a baseball diamond uh, close by in Connorsville. And so that was kind of his first exposure to sports was baseball. And then when he got to high school, of course, he uh, you know started playing more of the other ones. But baseball was kind of the first one that him and his brothers played on the farm. Mm-hmm.
0: And his father really never, I don't know if he didn't approve of it, but as we find in a lot of these stories from back in the day, they weren't overly thrilled with the fact that he was playing baseball or football, sports in general.
1: Yeah, that was wasn't a big part of their lives really. And you know, as I say in the book, he was lucky to even go to high school. The bus driver, the bus driver for the high school, is mapping his route out for the uh, for the year to bring them in to Boyceville. Andy was about oh, 15 minutes away from Boyceville, and um, the bus driver was just mapping out the route. Happened to drive by, saw Andy in the field, wondered why maybe this why the, yeah, this kid's not on my list. So he got out and spoke to. Andy's father, and by the end of the conversation, he talked um Mr. Pafco into allowing Andy to attend high school.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Good thing he did. No. You now a little, I'm gonna jump ahead a little sure. here. Um yeah. a little sidebar because there was something in the book that struck me. You know, Andy played in the forties, and his career came during the Second World War. And one of the things that struck me is this. I've done a couple of podcasts about forgotten heroes whose careers took place during the war, and some of them, despite how good they were in their chosen sport, they were 4F from the military, Andy included. All of these guys wanted to serve, and they couldn't. They were 4F, and yet they starred in their sports. Some of them yeah. at the ultimate highest of levels. Do you find that as strange as I do that they were so darn good in between the lines, but they weren't? They 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 couldn't serve.
1: Yeah, it was, it's kind of you know peculiar with with those situations. I think Andy. You know, he went to the draft board you know a handful of times he got 4f status i think for perforated eardrum if i remember correctly and i think there was some lasting effects from that uh that childhood fire that he was in if i could step back a little bit and talk about that it was shortly sure. before yeah. before his uh, eighth or ninth birthday and him and two of his friends went to the slovak lutheran church to get the fire going for the uh, sunday school and one of the boys inadvertently threw high-test gasoline, and thinking it was regular gasoline, get the fire going. It blew up. Um, that boy died. One of the mm. other ones was severely burned. Andy was suffered burns to the side of his face and was blind actually for a week. And um, I think there was some lingering effects from that that contributed to his 4F status.
0: Yeah, it's just a, a, a weird thing. And yeah, I was gonna ask yeah. you to talk about Andy's uh uh childhood and the fire and, and growing up and what it was like to grow up in that area of the country.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and so it was he was you know, he, he was a farm boy, grew up close by to where Burley Grimes grew up as well in that part of the part mm-hmm. of the uh western Wisconsin like I said, pretty pretty standard childhood for the time. Farming was a huge part of his life. Um, as, as we already went over, athletics mm-hmm. were, a, were a huge mm-hmm. thing in the family, and so it was kind of a, a foregone conclusion, conclusion that he was going to be a farmer.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was a really good ball player. Tell us about his amateur career and just how good he was. I mean, he caught the attention of a lot of people real early, and, um, you know, he was one of the stars in in high school, as as you were saying. What yeah. was his, you know, amateur career like playing baseball?
1: Well, he was kind of he was head and shoulders above the competition in the Dunn County League, and uh, playing for Kitzner's Tavern, uh, a place uh, in Connorsville. And you know, he was a standout in the league. But after he was done with high school, he just thought, you know, it'd kind of be. You now that was his extent for baseball was because there was no high school team. It was all summer league teams that they saw. And so he just kind of thought that would be his his calling. And then he tried out for the Eau Claire Bears and he he made the team. And the next day, the, the manager comes to him and says, I, I signed too many people. I have to cut someone. You're the person I'm going to cut. And so Andy, <laughs> you know, goes back home, dejected, thinking that's going to be it for baseball, just playing Sunday Sundays with Connorsville. And so until the fall comes around, this fancy car pulls in the driveway and him and his brother out in the field. And they think it's just a tractor salesman or something until his mom calls him in. And it's the Bears manager that they Bears are last place in the Northern League. Uh, They have like three weeks left. The injuries have depleted them and they need some bodies to fill the roster. And they reach out to Andy and he hops at the opportunity and goes from there.
0: Yeah. And, and again, he makes this big impression playing, you know, amateur baseball. How did he end up with the Cubs?
1: So it kind of, it, it progressed, slowly progressed and there were, there were definitely roadblocks in the way. And so that first season he uh, ends up, um, doing well enough with the bears to catch on with the green Bay blue Jays. And then from there he gets signed, um, he thinks he's going to go to the minor league Milwaukee Brewers at the time. And then he gets sent to Macon, Georgia, the Macon, uh, uh, Macon Peaches, and thinks that, you know, it, it's a real kind of a, a, uh, a crossroads for him. He's not sure if he wants to go there. Um, he was never comfortable. I said it was too far south for him from mm-hmm. home. And so he has a good enough season, though. And once again, the Brewers uh, catch on and say, we're going to sign you and then he's reading in the paper that he sent to the uh, Los Angeles Angels of the Pacific Coast League once again another crisis for him not sure if he wants to do it especially going you know halfway across the country one of his brothers younger brothers who are both you know really into sports and baseball in particular talk him into it he goes and has this uh wins the triple crown out there uh, wins the league MVP, and oddly enough, doesn't win his team MVP. That goes to someone else. Yeah, but, it's
0: really you
1: know. <laughs> strange. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> and so, in four, uh, uh, he gets a September call-up in 43 from the Cubs and goes from there. In
0: 1940, Andy played in the Northern League with Euclid, a Class D level team, and while record-keeping wasn't as in-depth as it is today, according to baseball reference, Andy hit 209 in the 20 games he played. But in 1941, Andy started to show everyone just how good he was. In 87 games with Green Bay, he hit 349 with 12 home runs and 66 ribbies to go along with an OPS of 953. In 1942, Andy played with the Macon Peaches, a Class B affiliate of the Cubs, where he hit 300, and in 1943, Andy started the year with the Los Angeles Angels in the PCL and earned league MVP honors with a 356 batting average, 18 home runs, and 118 RBI. Andy also had 31 doubles, 13 triples, and stole 13 bases. He didn't get to finish out the season in the PCL and was called up to the Cubs, where he flashed enough brilliance with his glove and bat to earn a spot on the roster for the 1944 season. He makes his debut with the Cubs in 1943 and he stuck with the team. I mean, he made a pretty darn good first impression hitting 379 and 58 at bats and he sticks with the team and in his first full season 1944 he hits 269 certainly not as good as 379 but it was his defense that really made a difference tell us what kind of ball player andy was
1: was an all-out ball player um had a great arm was fast uh would you know make spectacular catches Um, was really an all-around player.
0: Andy's defense is what stood out the most during the early portion of his career. There was virtually no ball he couldn't catch. He enjoyed playing center field because he thought he could track the ball better as opposed to playing left field or right field. As for the Cubs, they were putting together a team that should have been good for quite some time. Phil Cavaretta was playing first base in his 20 years with the Cubs he hit 292 and would win the National League MVP Award in 1945. Stan Hack, now in his mid thirties, was still hitting the ball well. In nineteen forty-four, he hit two hundred eighty-two and followed that by hitting three twenty-three, two hundred eighty-five, and two seventy-one over the next few years before retiring. On the mound, Hank Weiss won 22 games in 1945, Claude Passeau won 17, and Paul Derringer won 16. But, despite all this, the Cubs, who had gone 98-56 and 56 and made it to the World Series in 1945, followed that with disappointing seasons in 1946 going 82-71, and 71. 1947 going 69 and 85, and 1948 64 and 90. In fact, it wouldn't be until 1952 that the Cubs would finish the season at 500 when they went 77 and 77 with Cavaretta at the helm. But it was that 1945 season and World Series when Andy really arrived. In the regular season, he hit 298 with 12 home runs, but he knocked in 110. He had 24 doubles, 12 triples, and finished fourth in the race for the National League MVP. In the World Series, he hit just 214, but as expected, his glove was spectacular. And at that time, the Cubs were putting together a pretty good team. And in 1945, they made it to the World Series against the Tigers. What you talked about early on in the show, that um, when you wrote the book, that was the last time the Cubs had made the World Series. So first, who were some of the other guys that were playing for the Cubs back then that made that team so darn good?
1: Well, probably some of the bigger ones. With uh, Phil Cavaretta was one, um, or some of the other guys on that forty-five team. Stan Hack, Hack, uh, Bowery was an, was a pitcher. Um, Gabby Hartnett Cla- was he around yeah. at that point? Yep. Um, Hartnett was not yet. Okay. Uh, Cla- Claude Passon was uh, mm-hmm. was uh, was one of their uh, main pitchers. Charlie Grimm was now their manager. Um, but Pafko was kind of—he really had a, a coming out party, I think, in that forty-five World Series. And if you know, if it was kind of, he had these real first, good first couple games, in particular against Hal Newhouser, who won was back, who won MVP back-to-back years with the Tigers. Mm-hmm. And Andy had a couple hits and a, a few really good plays in the field right away, and so that kind of caught the eye of everyone. And actually, for Game Seven. Someone came up from Milwaukee to kind of track what was going on in Boysville during this game, and it caught on. With the sporting news picked it up and ran this huge spread on Pasco for Game Seven. Of course, they end up losing, but there was all this just this huge coverage surrounding him. And uh, like I said, he was kind of the the star of the series, even though you know the Tigers won. hmm
0: hmm So the forty-five season. You know, they lose in the World Series to the Detroit Tigers in seven games. And they're all poised to make another run in 46. But it wasn't the greatest of years for Andy in 1946. He was hurt. Why did Andy always get off? Or Andy was an an injury-prone player. Why? Why was he so injury-prone?
1: So in 46 stuff he had a, a kidney ailment and a, a really bad rash but I think it was the way he approached the game a lot of times too all out um would just lay out for for catches which were kind of his become his signature for these type of catches he made and he just and you know just some bad luck sometimes running into injuries just the way he played the ball
0: Yeah you know as I was reading through your book and and thinking about comparable ball players you know we could all think of ball players who had no fear and andy was one of those and if i had to draw a comparison to the way he played i was giving it some thought and i thought about guys like a fred lynn or a jim Edmond, guys who routinely crashed into walls and would you know they would just lay out to catch anything they could and I would think that a lot of the injuries that Andy did suffer um, came from the fact that he had this reckless abandon in the outfield, no?
1: I Yeah, he put that perfectly. Those are two really good players to compare him to, the way that they approach the game, and unfortunately the, the ramifications of how they played. Mm-hmm. So
0: here's Andy Pafko, a really, you know, just this great ball player, um you know just everything is looking up for him and um he's he's a star outfielder and along comes a season in which he gets switched to third base so he's a stud outfielder and gets switched to third base and not only was he switched to third base he was switched to third base after the Cubs had acquired another terrific third baseman in Frank Gustine from the Pittsburgh Pirates. Why was Andy switched to third base? Did it have anything to do with his reckless abandon in the outfield? Did it have anything to do with trying to keep him healthy and keep him on the
1: field? Yeah, I think Grim thoughts, and I think that's likely the reason Grimm thought so highly of him they wanted to keep him in the lineup and he kept getting injured I was an all-star outfielder one of the best outfielders in the National League at the time um, and they move him into third base and I think partially to to, to uh, keep him healthy and he ended up making the all-star game that year as the first player to start an all-star game in two different positions in back-to-back years. In 1948,
0: Andy Pafko and Frank Gustine were the National League All-Star third basemen. Gustine, who was playing for the Pittsburgh Pirates, hit two hundred sixty seven for the year with nine home runs and 42 ribbies. It was the third straight year he had played third base in the All-Star game. He possessed a solid glove, and that, more than anything else, is why he was an All-Star. Pafko, who was playing third base for the first time in his career, had a really good 1948. He hit 312 with 26 home runs, 101 RBI, and added 30 doubles while striking out just 50 times in 606 at bats. As the season wore on, he got better defensively, but the Cubs wanted him back in the outfield where he was stronger. So during the offseason, Chicago engineered a trade with the Pirates for their all-star, Frank Gustine. Chicago sent pitcher Cliff Chambers, who was coming off a rookie year in which he went 2-9, along with Clyde McCullough, a light-hitting catcher, to Pittsburgh for Gustine and seldom-used pitcher Cal McLeish. Gustine Didn't fare well with Chicago. Just 29 years old, he hit 226 with four homers and 27 RBI in 76 games. Chicago waived Gustine. He was picked up by the Philadelphia Athletics and was then part of a trade with the St. Louis Browns. Unfortunately, Gustine didn't last very long. In 1950, he played in just nine games and was released. Meanwhile, in 1949, PAFCO split his time between the outfield and third base. He hit two hundred eighty one with 18 homers and 69 RBI. In 1950, he played the outfield exclusively and hit three hundred four with a career-high 36 home runs and 92 runs batted in. In fact, in 1950, Andy hit more home runs... 36, then he had strikeouts, 32. Yeah, it was 48. He hit 312. He had 26 home runs and 101 RBIs. I mean, and and he played in 142 games. So he was really, you know, establishing himself as one of the best players in the game. And he goes through this transition to go from outfield to third base. And then in 1949, he gets switched back to the outfield. Um, And that, you know, turned out to be somewhat of a downer of a season for Andy Pafko. I mean, he had a lot of off-field distractions. His His mother died, unfortunately. He missed the wedding ceremony of his brothers. Two brothers got married the same day and the Cubs didn't do too well. Can you talk at all about that trying season, nineteen forty nine, why he was switched back to the outfield and and just all these off field distractions?
1: Yeah, and you you hit the off field distractions very well there. And I think it was that limbo of you know, the Cubs were in that in really going into a, a two decade long or decade, even more slide of, uh, you know, until 69, I think it was when they blew that huge lead they had, but, um, or 60, I can't remember now For 69, but, 69
0: against the Mets.
1: Yeah. Yep. And so, yeah, you, you look at those two, two years and he sandwiched there, you know, I, there's a lot of players that would like to hit 18 home runs at two eighty one, you know, 29 doubles, but that 49 season, I think was really difficult. And, those off-field distractions, as you said, switching back to the outfield and kind of the futility of the Cubs all combined to a really kind of a down down year for him after, you know, a couple of really good years in a row. Yeah, I mean, in
0: 1948, he hit 26 home runs, knocked in 101, hit 312, and like you said, hitting 18 homers and batting 281 is not the worst thing in the world. And by the way, he was on the all-star team that year, but then he comes back in 1950 and has maybe the best season of his career. Hits three Oh four knocks, you know, knocks in 92 and hits 36 home runs and has 24 doubles. So, what was the difference? And by the way, he was 29 years old at this point, so he's in the prime of his career. What was the difference here? Why, all of a sudden, was he able to recapture that magic that he had lost previously?
1: I think he was back comfortably back in the outfield. One of my favorite stats from that year, too, is that he hit 36 home runs and struck out only 32 times.
0: Yeah, there were a couple of years as as you point out where he hit more home runs than he struck out. I mean, this guy was had a heck of an eye at the plate.
1: Yeah, and I think having Hank Sauer hit behind him as well doesn't hurt either. And uh, even though they were going so poorly, to have you know those two in a three four combination certainly helped too. Having Sauer hit behind him,
0: you know, when you look back at Andy's career and you know it, some of well, one of the best seasons he had was with Brooklyn as far as how far the Dodgers went in the in the postseason as opposed to what the Cubs did. With the exception of the 45 season, as you just alluded to as well, the Cubs really weren't that good during Andy's time with the team. Did he ever talk about that playing for a second division team and how frustrating or disappointing it was because his demeanor, the way you write about Andy Pafko was so unassuming. He was just like this happy go lucky guy.
1: I think I'm sure it wore on him and especially as trade rumors became more and more as when you're one of the best players on one of the worst teams, your name's always going to be coming up in trade rumors. And they actually, you know, of course actually came true there, but he loved playing for the Cubs he thought his best years were th- admittedly, he you know, he was never the same, he thought, after he left the Cubs. Um, so he, he loved being in Chicago, lived there in the offseason, um, even when he was on other teams. And so um, I think it was difficult for him to leave Chicago, but it obviously worked out well for him.
0: So in his nine years with the Cubs, Pathco put up some pretty good numbers. He hit 294 with 126 home runs and 584 runs batted in, and he had an OPS of 829. And he added 162 doubles and 40 triples. His best year was arguably 1948 when he hit 312 with 26 homers and 101 RBI. The Cubs, however, outside of the 1945 season, were nothing more than a mediocre ball club, when, by all accounts, they should have done better. What about off the field? What was his life like off the field? Um, You know, he was not a partier. Uh, Like I said, a pretty happy-go-lucky guy, a pretty unassuming guy. What was life like for Andy Pafko away from Wrigley Field?
1: As you, as you said, they're very, very quiet when he, you know, he moved there as a single guy, would live at, you know, at the hotel where the team was, wouldn't really go out and fraternize with his teammates. Uh, still, uh, he was a shy person, still spoke with a, a Slovak ask, accent as well, uh, just from learning that being his first language really was Slovak. Um, got married in 45 to uh, his wife, Ellen, another Slovak and uh, from the area in Chicago. And so uh, very quiet off field, unassuming, um, you know, held various jobs, sporting goods, store jobs and stuff. So um, was a pretty much a model citizen was loved by fans of all ages. Um, Pathco was very popular wherever he went.
0: And, Another note here, I mean, there were several companies that engaged with Andy for endorsements at this point during his career. So, you know, here's a guy who, as we just said, was very unassuming, happy-go-lucky, didn't cause trouble. He was an all-star, one of the most sought-after players in trades. Other teams wanted Andy Pafko, a guy with as clean a reputation as could be, yet when we talk about... Great players, his name rarely comes up. What gives? Why is he not remembered as much as his peers? Heck, Frankie Frisch, the Cubs' manager, once compared him to Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker. I mean, that's pretty good company.
1: Yeah, and I think it. You know, he he was you know the best player on the Cubs on bad Cubs teams. You know, even in that forty five World Series. He had that breakout series, but was still the younger guy on the team there. There was other veterans that were kind of ahead of him. And then he went to the Dodgers and was, you know, pushed further into the shadows. And then the Braves, you know, he was very popular, but they had Spawn and then Matthews and then Aaron came around. And so, and he was an unassuming guy, wasn't pushing himself out there. And I think. You know, to baseball people, he was a great player, but, uh, you know, maybe to the fan, he didn't have the allure that some of those other players did.
0: You know, one of the fun things about being a baseball fan, heck, being a sports fan, is playing what if. What could have happened if? And I found myself doing that with Andy, what if he didn't have all of those injuries? What if he played for a better team? It's it's the same as saying, what if Ted Williams didn't spend so much time serving in the military or Willie Mays? These guys might have had more home runs than Babe Ruth. They might have been regarded as even greater than they were. So when you look back and you say, what if, what can we say about Andy Pafko? What if he didn't suffer the amount of injuries and miss as much time as he did? Do you think there's any possibility he would be a much more revered player than he is?
1: I think so. I I think you're onto something there. And yeah, there's always what ifs in it. There a lot, there's a lot of what ifs with players, but yeah, those bad Cubs teams. And then he went to the Dodgers and didn't do too well with them. Um, he, got, of course, got injured right away with the Dodgers, which I don't, I don't think is talked about enough and that impact on that 51 season. And then by the time he was with the Braves, had a couple, you know, decent seasons, but, you know, was a part-time player after the first couple of years. And so it just injuries took his toll. The way he approached the game started to take his toll on his body.
0: Hmm. You know, the Cubs year in and year out were approached with trade offers for Andy and they never budged. And that is until the Dodgers finally acquired him midway through the 1951 season. Why did the Cubs finally make the trade and how did Andy react?
1: I think they just finally, finally got what they wanted. And I think they were just kind of, it was, the writing was on the wall that they weren't going to improve anytime soon. And so they, they wanted to get something for him. And it was very devastating for Andy and Ellen. Um, They just bought a Brownstone home uh, the previous, the previous off season figure that's where they're going to be for life. He's going to be a cub for life. And then the the Dodgers are in town and um, June 15th, he's traded to the Dodgers. He's in the club, the Cubs club clubhouse one day and the Dodgers the next.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, he didn't have to go pretty far to change teams. I guess if you're going to be traded, that's sort of the way you want it. Um, The crazy thing about it is here he's on the Cubs one day, the Dodgers the next in Wrigley Field. He makes his debut with the Dodgers hits a home run, this fan favorite of the Chicago Cubs, who could do no wrong, hits a home run, and what do the Cub fans do? They boo. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, so the first time he's ever booed at Wrigley Field.
0: You know, um, there was a lot of pressure on him to to help Brooklyn win. Um, he hits the home run his debut, not too shabby, but then things went south what happened
1: yeah later in that game he hyperextended his knee uh legging one out at the first base and uh didn't tell anyone just got worse and worse couple of weeks later you know he had this huge hematoma on the back of his knee and uh, had to sit out for a while i don't think he fully ever fully recovered from it that season and the the acquisition of PAFCO I think was was kind of insurance cuz the Dodgers were so far ahead at that point they just it was almost like they were just stock, stacking their lineup and so um I'm sure people some people pointed fingers at him because of that but uh he was injured I don't think he ever you know recover fully recovered from that injury that year
0: yeah you know his his totals for the season Weren't the worst. I mean, if I look back here, uh, for the year, he hit 30 home runs in in 1951, and he knocked in 93, but he had a batting average of 255. And, of course, Joe, we're talking about the 1951 season and the pressure on Andy, you know, he was supposed to be – the guy that helped put the Dodgers over the top. And they had this big lead against the New York Giants, and no one could have ever imagined what was going to happen, especially Andy, who started his year with the Cubs. What role did Andy play in the collapse of the Dodgers? Did he play a role in the collapse of the Dodgers?
1: I think there are so many factors. And like I said, I, I think I'm sure people pointed fingers at him that maybe it broke up the team chemistry, adding a star like him to the lineup, another star. Um, it, in, in all actuality, I mean, he was one of the reasons they got to that three-game playoff with, with uh, the Giants. Um, That last game of the season, he played a key role in that just to get them to that uh, three-game series. So, um, I don't know. I don't know, you know, what – there's so many reasons why things went wrong, and maybe the acquisition of Pafco played a part in it. I'm not really sure. The
0: 1951 season, of course, was one for the ages. First, Andy Overall, between Chicago and Brooklyn, he hit .255 with 30 home runs and 93 ribbies. With Brooklyn, he hit .249 with 18 homers and 58 RBI. But overall, it was a disappointing season for Andy as that .255 batting average was the lowest of his career. As for the Dodgers, as most everyone knows, the collapse was Epic. However, I think what might get lost in the collapse is what happened with the Giants. It was not a one-game playoff as many people think it was. The Dodgers and Giants faced off in a three-game playoff, a classic. Brooklyn lost the first game at home 3-1. Game 2 at the Polo Grounds, which by the way was within walking distance of Yankee Stadium saw the Dodgers tie the series in a 10-0 clubbing of New York. But it was the Game 3 stunner in which the Giants clawed their way back in to win it in the bottom of the ninth, 5-4 on the Bobby Thompson home run, of which Andy Pafko ran out of room and watched the ball sail over his head into the left field seats. You know, Bobby Thompson hits the home run and it's Andy Pafko who you see at the wall watching the ball disappear into the stands. And it's not a game that any Dodger would ever want to talk about, but how funny things are because later on, who becomes Andy's roommate and... Who becomes one of his better friends?
1: Bobby Thompson, yep. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the coincidence. I mean, here's a guy who doesn't ever want to talk about that game, that hit, and who's his roommate? Bobby Thompson. What does Andy say about that, or what What did Andy say
1: about that? I think he just, after a while, it was just, you know, they became such good friends and roommates and um I, I think at at some point Andy just, you know, let it be let it be uh let it be a bygone. So Mhm. Mhm.
0: Well, fifty two season comes around and the Dodgers They're supposed to be really good again, and this time they were. They make it to the World Series. Andy has a decent season, 19 homers, 85 RBIs. He hits two eighty-seven. They were up three games to one against the Yankees. They go back to Brooklyn and were swept. Andy had hurt his leg in game five, and he only got the pinch hit in game six and seven and went 0 for two. Certainly disappointing. How would you label the one and a half years he spent in Brooklyn?
1: I think you, that last word you said, disappointing. I think the whole thing was disappointing for him that, uh, you know, they, they couldn't seal the deal there in either season. You know, at least they made it to the World Series that second year. But for him to be injured those last couple games and just get in for pinch hitting kind of epitomized the disappointment that he experienced while he was in Brooklyn.
0: Was was there ever any excitement in the fact that he was playing for Brooklyn? Did he enjoy his time as a Dodger, even though the results were somewhat disappointing? Did he picture himself playing for a while in Brooklyn? Did he miss Chicago? I mean, what was it like being a Brooklyn Dodger?
1: Uh, It was very difficult for him uh, and his wife as well, who loved Chicago. That's where her family was. And so to move, uh, you know, know, halfway across the country there to be in Brooklyn, much more of a high stress situation, I think, for him. And I don't think everything, anything, it didn't really pan out the way he had hoped. But I thought, I think he was thought he was going to be a Dodger long term until it was, until he wasn't.
0: What about the fans? Do you know if the fans enjoyed having Andy in Brooklyn or was there no connection there?
1: I think I think they're excited to have a player of his caliber there and the way he approached games. And um, I think they enjoyed seeing him in a Dodger uniform.
0: Well, shortly after the 52 season, he was sold to the Boston Braves, and what an odd time because he never made it to Boston with the Braves. They moved to Milwaukee during the spring training, so that had to be so exciting for Andy because he was heading back close to Chicago, but even better, he was going back to Wisconsin to finally play at home. And the Braves, they were actually beginning to assemble a pretty good, good team as well can you talk about that at all the excitement of well I guess maybe starting with wow I'm going to Boston but then it turns into excitement that he's going to Milwaukee
1: sure yeah and so he was very disappointed to go to Boston you know they traded him for Roy Hartsfield and fifty thousand dollars and they said it was part of a youth movement but they end up moving Jackie Robinson to the outfield to take his place. And so it was kind of peculiar that they made that move and then he was going to go to Boston and other, you know, still going to be far from home. And then, as you said, they're the Milwaukee Brewers before the season begins. And that's a huge move because, you know, that's their, you know, Milwaukee's first year uh, having a professional team in the state of Wisconsin was a cub state with Chicago being so close there. So, they already, you know, there was just a, a double a double whammy there of, of goodness for PAFCO that he's going back home to his home state, and the state already loved the Cubs and they remembered PAFCO, and so it was just a, a wonderful homecoming for him.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's really funny about that uh, the 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 moving of the Braves to Milwaukee during spring training, as most of us know the Braves didn't last very long in Milwaukee. And 16 years later, the Seattle pilots at the end of spring training end up in Milwaukee. So it's, it's twice Uh that Milwaukee gets a team in spring training, but let's go back to just how excited the people of Milwaukee were to be getting the Braves. I mean, they packed the stadiums. Talk about the excitement of having a prof- a, a, a major league baseball team in Milwaukee.
1: Yeah, they've been clamoring for, I think, 1901 was the last year that they had one. They were one and done, and that team moved to St. Louis. Um, and so they were just and they'd always had minor league ball it was always a big baseball city. And so they were overjoyed to have a, a professional team, their major league team there again, I should say. And they showed it. They came out in droves, um, and boy, those those brave team Braves teams of the fifties were amazing. And just doing the research on them, and their head to head with the Dodgers just is amazing rivalry. And uh, it was, yeah, those teams were great.
0: Well, Andy certainly showed up to play his his first couple of years. Well, Andy always showed up to play. In fact, before we get into those couple of years that he did spend in Milwaukee, talk about how Andy prepared for a game. He was always one of the first ones there. What what was Andy's routine like?
1: Uh he would get, get to the park, he'd get, you know, be workout, he would get rubbed down from the trainer by that, you know, as we talked about, I mean he was, you know, pretty right away would always be uh in some sort of pain, you know. So get rubbed down, get out BP fielding was always there early, one of the first ones there.
0: Well, like you said, you know, the fans really took to the team. In fact, I'm looking at it right now. They drew over 1.8 million people that first season, and there were no preseason ticket sales. Nobody knew there was going to be a team there. And, man, did they have some some really good players Those that, that first year. Del Crandall was their catcher. They had Joe Adcock. They had Eddie Matthews. Um, I mean, this was you know a heck of a team. They had Warren Spahn, Johnny Antonelli. Talk about just how good the Braves were and what Andy brought to that team, why he was so important to a, a member of the Milwaukee Braves.
1: I think as veteran press... Presence, but also he was the only Wisconsin native on that team, and he had you know those slew of hall of famers during that time, and definitely def better players on the team than him, but he was always the fan favorite and I thought that really I think that really endeared him to the the fans of Milwaukee
0: well, his first game his 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 first season in Milwaukee he played in a hundred and forty games and you know he had the the year earlier he had played for Brooklyn you know 150 games um so he, this was really the beginning well he had one more season where he played well over 100 games but here he hit 17 homers knocked in 72 had a 297 batting average how good were the Braves at that point and I guess you you really can not foresee it happening, but this was sort of, you know, he's 32 and he's teetering on eh, You know, he's not going to play that much after this.
1: Yeah. It's kind of the, the beginning of the end for him. And that 54, you know, they're building that roster and that 54 seat in the off season there, they pick up Bobby Thompson, uh, Henry Aaron comes to town and actually Pafko was going to be out of the starting outfield. Until Thompson uh, broke his ankle, which got PAFCO back into the lineup.
0: And then, yeah, so he plays in 140 games the first season there. 54, he plays in 138, and then he basically is relegated to being a part-time player. How did that sit with him?
1: He wasn't too happy about it, but he, I, you know, he wasn't vocal about it. Didn't uh, cause any waves. Just was when he was called upon to play, he did and did well, did well, especially as those pennant teams started to, uh, you know, those pennant years,
0: those brave teams were good in 1953, Milwaukee went 92 and 62 and finished second in the national league after a disappointing stay in Brooklyn, Andy rebounded to hit 297 with 17 homers and 72 RBI. And the fans, well, they couldn't get enough of the team leading the National League in attendance. In 1954, the Braves slipped a little, finishing third with a record of 89-65, and but they smashed attendance records as 2,131,388 fans came through the turnstiles. 1955, Milwaukee, well, they fell a little more in wins with 85 finished second and again more than 2 million fans showed up. The Braves were getting close but still couldn't find their way to the top and in 1956 again finished second to the Dodgers with a record of 92 and 62. But in 1957 it finally all came together in front of a record attendance of 2,215,000. 404 fans. The Braves went 95 and 59 and beat the Yankees in the World Series 4 games to 3. Andy, no longer in the starting lineup, still contributed by batting 277 with 8 homers and 27 ribbies in 83 games. In the series, however, Andy saw a decent amount of time. He hit just two fourteen, but it was his defense that Milwaukee was counting on, and he delivered. The Braves returned to the World Series in 1958 after finishing atop the National League with a 92 and 62 mark. This time, however, they lost four games to three against the Yankees. Andy saw a limited action in the 58 series and hit. 333 in the four games he played. After that 58 series, however, Milwaukee steadily fell on the standings and attendance dropped. And when 1966 came around, the Milwaukee Braves were nothing more than a memory and Atlanta was the beneficiary. But it was that 1957 season for which the Milwaukee Braves are best remembered. The Braves we a good team. I mean, this is a team that became a contender, you know, pretty quickly. And um, 1957, they go and they face the New York Yankees in the World Series. Uh, Tell us about it. Tell us about how exciting it was in Milwaukee to finally be making an appearance in the World Series and the kind of uh, contributions to the team that Andy made, even though his playing time was so dramatically reduced.
1: Yeah, so they were, you know, by that time, as we'd said, he was in a, a, a supporting role Um, but as I mentioned, injuries started to take place on other team members and he stepped in there and, and really kind of propelled them in some ways to the pennant. Um, whenever he was called upon, he did play well and in the world series, he played and and had some good games and at bats and, you know, they so exciting for Milwaukee at the time. and Of course, Stengel had made the comment about the crack about Bushville and kind of thrived, <laughs> thrived on that. And uh, they won the pennant that year. was exciting, of course, for them.
0: You know, 58 and 59, both of those seasons ended in such disappointment in 58. The Braves had a three, one lead to four games of the series against the Yankees. And then they lost in a best of three playoff to the Dodgers in 1959. Um again, Andy played sparingly during both of those seasons and after 59 his career was over. It it ended so suddenly. Looking back though, this guy was one of the most positive thinking ball players of all time. He just loved the game, and he really never complained about a thing. And, you know, he was tossed just two times over the course of his entire career. How do you sum up a career like Andy Pafko?
1: I you know the, I think the term gets thrown a lot, but he he definitely belongs in the hall of very good you know. Um, and I think that what well, you allude to there with the, the getting thrown out a couple times, just twice, in his a pretty lengthy career, was kind of that under the radar player that he was at times. And so, oh, um, a great career, played for a lot of really good teams and was a contributor on, on those teams.
0: Mm -hmm. Did he want to stay in baseball afterwards?
1: He did. I mean, he was going to be an umpire. Um, He ended up being a coach for the Braves for a couple of years, a bench coach, and then was around the minors for a few years as a coach. And a scout And his last scouting job was in the late 60s for the Expos, who were an expansion team at the time
0: one of one of the things you mentioned was i think it was twice he was a co-manager how does that happen what is a co-manager
1: I, I i think the the teams he was they were just i don't think they were that good teams that he was helping out with and so they just decided that um you know neither one of them really wanted to take the reins and so they decided to go at it just as a a tandem
0: Well, Joe, I want to thank you so much for coming on Sports Forgotten Heroes yet again to talk about another terrific player from up in your neck of the woods, Andy Pafko. Have you been able to unearth any other sports stars from up there that you're thinking about maybe uh, writing about?
1: Uh, nothing, nothing uh, right now. Um, I actually just handed in a manuscript to McFarland for Zach Wheat from Missouri. So uh, that's going to be out uh, early 2021.
0: Well, when it comes out, you'll have to let me know. And we'll have you back on Sports Forgotten Heroes to talk about the great Zach Wheat.
1: I will. I'll get you a copy of the book sent to you from the publisher and we'll talk about it.
0: Awesome, Joe. Thanks again. Stay healthy. And uh, you've been a great guest.
1: Thanks, Warren. I appreciate it, as always.
0: For his career, Andy Pafko hit 285 with 213 home runs and 976 RBI. Solid numbers, and when you project them out over a 162-game season – Andy's yearly numbers were a 285 average with 19 home runs and 85 RBI a season. Not bad. He appeared in four World Series and earned one championship ring. Certainly a terrific ball player who had a career that was filled with many magical moments. But the what-if factor looms large. Andy spent a lot of time in the dugout unable to play or suiting up hurt and still going out there and giving it his all because his team needed him. One has to wonder just how good his numbers could have been had he been able to play more often and more often at 100% than he did. I'd like to thank Joe Nees for taking the time to join me on Sports Forgotten Heroes and to all of you for spending some time with me as well and I look forward to seeing you all next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes